What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney David Hauser is an entrepreneur speaker and angel investor He is best known for co-founding Grasshopper, a virtual phone service for entrepreneurs acquired by the Citrix Systems in 2015 for $170 million. He also founded Chargeify, who had investors such as Mark Cuban and was acquired by Scaleworks in 2016. In this episode, David talks about what it takes to succeed as an entrepreneur, what he does to learn and develop new skills, and how to tackle new industries. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. David, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, of course. You've got an interesting career story, one that's going to give the listeners a lot of tidbits, a lot of interesting facts to take away. But let's start at your origin story. What sparked your interest into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So, I mean, really as far back as I can remember, it's like all I really thought about. Um, so I struggled a lot in school with reading and, and writing, and I had to go to tutoring uh, four days a week for a long period of time just to kind of catch up with my peers from a reading perspective, right? Um, so like everything else I did was entrepreneurship, right? So if that was um, selling like jewelry, if that was uh, working in the school, like e- in school, each of the classes had a job function. Um, so trying to lead that. Um, and then as early as I can remember, like picking up computers and just trying, like, can I do like website design? Like this, like the web is just starting, like, what can I do? Um, so it was really like all I thought about. When you were playing around with different websites, what did you initially think you'd be doing as a career? Was there any trajectory, any idea what you might be doing someday? I knew 100% I was going to be an entrepreneur. Like the only school college I wanted to go to, like so fast forward through like high school, right? And and high school, like I played sports, I did all the things, and I actually learned a lot about routine then and how to fill my schedule to make myself most productive. Um, but uh, leaving high school, the only thing I wanted to do was go to Babson College, which was a school that was one of the few that had a focused entrepreneurship program. Like I didn't want to go work with someone. That's so interesting. Even from such a young age, so driven, so laser focused. So let's let's rewind to 2003, or I guess fast forward at this point. End up founding Grasshopper. What did what even sparked the idea for that company originally? 
Yeah, so this is uh, kind of sophomore, junior year in college at Babson College, um, me and a business partner. We had both founded a number of other small things, right? Like mostly online businesses. Uh, and we again and again ran into the same problem. How do we have a professional image? Um, and this was like still, like I had a flip phone, like a, a StarTech uh, Motorola flip phone, right? Um, and so, you know, people would call that and it's not very professional. I pick it up at random times or, you know, your other option was a house phone, like, you know, and your mom's picking up the phone. Like, you know, these are not very professional things when you're trying to sell an image of a company, right? Uh, and so nothing was out there, so we built it. So initially just solving your own problem. So so when you guys formulate the idea, what are next steps for you? I'm thinking about someone who's a young business owner and looking to get the company off the ground. What were early steps for you? Yes, yeah, so this was a conflicting time because like we're both um, in Babson College and being taught like business plans and you know all these things you should be doing, right? And our first natural reaction was like, let's just sell it. Like literally, like, can we get customers? <laughs> like, and it was very much against what we were learning. So I, I think I say conflicted because we did both, right? So we built the business plan. We we won the business plan competition that year at Babson. Um, so that helped, you know, kind of uh, validate it a little bit. But what we spent most of our time actually doing was like building the website, actually selling. And this was early days of uh, before AdWords. This was Omniture, right? So we were buying clicks super cheap so we could validate the idea really quickly. Um, and honestly, we were selling before we had the product built. <laughs> So, I mean, do you think that's essential? Like, you don't necessarily need the business plan if you're able to get out there and sell it and have a product that works? Yeah, so I, my my thinking on this has advanced a little bit, right? So, like, now I've launched a bunch of different companies, and I think of the business plan a little bit differently now um, and more of a way to put, you know, my ideas down onto paper to quickly communicate with other people, right? So, maybe that's a partner. Maybe that's someone coming in to help with Facebook ads. Maybe it's, you know, a vendor, right? But if I can have a very simple, succinct you know, presentation or business plan deck that I can send to someone that can communicate my stuff much faster than a conversation. That's where I find it effective today. But yeah, I tend to, you know, much more believe in like, just go do it and get real data and tell me like, are people paying for this? Like, is there a market? You know, what is the cost of acquisition? Like, those are the important questions today, I think, in, in most businesses. Do you ever publish any of your current business plans? That's a good question. So a few of the older ones I have, um, maybe I should start doing that. Like, um, it, there, there's nothing in there that's like top secret, right? Like it, it should be very simple and direct, right? So a company I've been helping and working on now um, is super fat, uh, a nut butter product for keto, paleo, and really anyone. Um, and, you know, that that deck is like really about like high level trends, right? Like uh, fat is becoming popular. Sugar is declining. Um, you know, like how those trends interact, you know, looking at those types of things. And I've used that to communicate with people a bunch of times. Yeah. I would love to talk about super fat a bit because entering the consumer package goods completely different from what you've done in the past. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I almost want to use this conversation like a real world NBA for a lot of listeners and, and truly dig into what an entrepreneurial journey is like. How much do the relationships you build throughout the journey play into the overall success for you? That's a great question. I've been reflecting on this quite a bit lately um, because going into like what you said is a, a new space, right? Like I, I went from recurring billing SaaS business selling to small businesses to consumer packaged goods. And we can have a discussion about how that's probably not the best idea in the world. But um, uh you know, what has been very interesting, I reflected on in the past few weeks, actually, is like the people I've met doing something else, quote unquote, have been tremendously helpful in doing something new, right? And I think it's to some extent an unfair advantage, right? And, and I think that's where entrepreneurs can differentiate themselves. Like starting and launching something puts you far ahead of everyone else because you've started to make those connections, right? Even if the thing you launch fails, right? You're now a step further ahead for next time. Um, and I think the same applies even if you just have a job and you're, you know, preparing for that next step. All of those connections you've made are tremendously helpful. And I didn't realize that until recently, like the people I could call up and the questions I could ask, right? 
Can you expand upon just the relationships with people in different spaces or sectors? Yeah. So I think there's two things that are super important here that I've learned. One is um, applying what you learn in another space to a different one, right? So um, the, the typical example of this is always like Southwest Airlines, right? They said like how do uh, NASCAR and F1 make the switch and fueling of cars so quick and like how do they turn things around so quickly, right? Um, and try to apply that to the airline industry. And now, you know, they, they were notorious when they did this for being the, the airline that could turn planes around the fastest, right? From landing to take off. Um, so I, I took that to heart and I think the same is true in, in what we're doing now where, you know, I, I know very well the SaaS business metrics like, uh, you know, cost per acquisition or CAC, um, return on ad spend, um, you know, kind of reorder rate and retention and, you know, all of these things and applying this to a new category People look at you like you're insane, but the numbers work, right? And they actually work far better than what is typically done in in consumer packaged goods. I got you. You mentioned there there were two different ways, and the first one being that first part. Sure. Is is yeah. there a second one you want to expand on? Yeah. So I think the the second thing um, is you know when when you have when you're moving from industry to industry, um, it is very surprising to me how much people you don't realize have overlap in the the kind of unrelated quote unquote industry, right? Like when I started to actually look through people I knew and contacts and people I had communicated with, I'm like, wow, like there's a tremendous amount of overlap in highly diverse industries, right? Um, or even just like they know the person I want to get to, right? So super close person that I've helped out over the years knows, you know, founder X at whatever company I want to talk to, right? Um, that, that I think has been very interesting. I'd be so interested to to hear almost the the most extreme version of trying to get in touch with someone, whether that be investing in a company because you know this po- person might be on the board. Have you ever done anything like that just to get closer and connected with someone? Yeah, so this is a really great question. I actually talked about it with a friend of mine the other day. Um, you know, when I, I look at investing today very much in that light, right? Um, I, I've made probably about 100 angel investments. Um, and I'd say as a portfolio, it's probably break even, right? Um, most of them have been tremendous losers. There's a few that kind of make the portfolio break even. Um, typical portfolio kind of theory in that way. But much more importantly, um, I, I look at like, where can I make investments that get me really close to super smart people that I want to learn from, one, um, or highly connected people that um, can help me out later on, right? So the return on that investment is not necessarily the dollar for dollar in the business. Um, And I think a good example of that is like uh, Mark Cuban. So Mark Cuban, we had him invest in Chargeify, one of our other businesses. And that got us a lot of things. One, you know, kind of just name brand recognition. Um, two, we were competing in, a, in the financial sector, so we needed kind of that stamp of approval. And, you know, it didn't really matter how much he invested, but it was like a stamp of approval. So we kind of bought that, right? Um, and, you know, so that was him investing in us. But, you know, hopefully I can do the reverse as well. Yeah, you mentioned being an angel in over 100 companies. How do you even source that type of deal flow? Yeah, so for good or for bad, I mean, it's tremendously focused in software services. Um, there's some stuff outside of that marketplace, um, some CPG things, um, a mix of other things. I also uh, said no to investing in Uber early on because I didn't understand the space and I was in software as a service, right? So it may, maybe maybe not the best theory, um, but I mean, most of that came to me over the years um, just because of you know being in that space. More recently, I've pretty significantly changed where I invest. So I'll only invest in companies doing over a million dollars annual run rate, so ARR, um, and usually profitable or near profitable. Um, and the founder needs something very specific, right? So either that's my time helping with scaling, uh, company culture, core values, things like that, or it's like, you know, I need help getting connections to these types of people. So the number of companies I invest in is probably down to two to three a year at this point. What company that you're invested in just has you the most excited right now? And that might not be from a profitability standpoint. It might just be mm. they have a great founder who's just who who just has it, something along those lines. Yeah, I think so. There's probably two that stand out right now. One is Groove, um, help desk software. 
founder there and the executive team, super smart, um, love what they've done with content marketing. So I've learned a ton from them about that. Like that was not a space I understood well. So again, that was a learning experience for me. Um, I think the other one is um, Hustle, a daily email um, that's kind of highly targeted at probably millennials, roughly. Um, and you know they they have grown tremendously quickly. And again, to me, the great learning experience. Like this is 100% an email list. Like if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said like email is not a marketing channel that makes sense. Um, I, I have changed my mind pretty significantly on that, and I've learned a lot about it from them um, and experiences with people that have very large email lists. In terms of other marketing channels, are you doing anything with text message advertising? Hmm. So it's an area we've played with. I haven't yet found a productive way to do it um, in the businesses I've been involved in. Um, I have seen some really interesting things for local businesses, right? So restaurants and places that have physical locations. Um, I think that's becoming a very interesting space from a text messaging standpoint because the the location kind of an instant uh, communication part of it is is really important. Um, so getting people to come back to a restaurant, for example, the return rate is much higher uh, with text messages than it was than it is with emails. What about other marketing strategies that you just have an idea might be the next phase, or it might be something a business owner should be looking into? Anything along those lines? Yeah. So one thing that keeps popping up on my kind of desktop lately is Pinterest. Um, I haven't yet tested it a lot. Um, I think obviously it's pr for products that are highly visu visual, right? Um, but it's one that keeps kind of coming up. Um, another one is Core and Reddit. Like I kind of put those into the same category. Um, I don't think there's a, like from our experience, there's not a tremendous amount of volume there yet, but there is pretty high intent and targeting, right? So I think those are interesting. Um, if you'd asked me this question a few years ago, I think, you know, really looking at what's like not cool. So a few years ago, radio was not cool. Now there's lots of tech companies advertising on the radio. So I think it started to get saturated. Um, but five or 10 years ago, there was like one company. It was Constant Contact, like no one else. Um, so at Grasshopper, we spent $12 million on radio advertising in one year. <laughs> not a small chunk of change there. And when you guys ended up selling, what were you doing? About 30 million a year? Yeah, so we were at 30 million a year um, and we had about 45 full-time people. I think it was 42 to be exact. Some serious growth there. I I'm still interested. So you mentioned a few of those things such as Pinterest, Core, Reddit. What happens, what are next steps for you when there's something that you think could be on the edge uh, of a new trend? How, how do you consume that? How do you dive into that to learn more? The first thing I do is just right away go spend a hundred or two hundred dollars and see what I what actually happens right like forget about like if I know how to do it or if it's the right way to structure a campaign or all of these silly questions like none of that matters if I'm spending a few hundred bucks um, but I want to see like you know directionally like is there traffic that I could spend a hundred dollars right like um, for a while ago I played with ways advertising right so like you know showing stuff on maps for a local business I was working with right and it actually drove reasonably good results from a brand perspective and even getting people into the store, but you could only spend about 75 bucks a month, <laughs> right? So like it, there's just a limit to it. Um, so then, then it doesn't matter how I structure the campaign. It's just like, turn it on and just say yes. Um, so that, that, to me, that's the first step, spend a few hundred dollars. Second step is once I know directionally, if there's real something there, like find the top three experts that can really dig into this and tell me like, does it matter how I structure it? Are there special settings? You know, Facebook, turn this on, turn that off, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, or like I've had to learn about Google shopping lately, right? Different than typical AdWords, their PLA listings, right? Um, same process. So you identify someone who might be the best in the world at whatever you're trying to learn. What does that look like? How does that conversation go? I'm assuming most of that would be cold outreach for you. Yeah, cold outreach. I always start with my contacts first, right? So if there's anyone in that space or might be related, I say like, who is the best in the world at this? And just like literally just email them. And I'm like, I don't care if they're employed by you, by someone else, agency, not like, I just want to learn. Like, I'm not looking to do anything except learn. So like, I'm asking for 30 minutes of someone that you believe is the best in the world at that. Usually I get at least one or two from that. Um, 
from there, I'll then start to look at like, which brands do I believe feel like they're doing this great on the specific channel and find out who's helping them. If it's an internal person or if it's an agency and, and find that contact. I'm always interested in how people perceive true greatness. So say you were watching a basketball game, you'll see LeBron James and everyone can just watch him and go, wow, that, that guy's truly spectacular at what he does. When's the last time you've had one of those 30 minute conversations with someone and just walked away saying that person is special? Yeah. So I think in the marketing space, it's kind of it's hard because part of it is just pure proof results, right? Like show me this in a campaign that you've done X, right? Um, the other is just high level understanding, right? So take like Amazon, for example, I know nothing about how to do Amazon, right? Um, across having probably 20 plus conversations, it became crystal clear, a, the themes across the best people. So like the, the, the people that had the best results had similar themes of what they talked about. So like, I'm like, so now I can narrow down and say like, okay, clearly this is the right way to do certain things. Um, but yeah, marketing's hard. Like, um, I always look to the results, right? Like if I see a brand that gets me to pay attention, right? Like I'm not on Facebook very often. So if I'm scrolling through, through and I see a brand that's got my attention and got me to click on something, I want to know who got me to do that. Not the brand. I want to know the person, right? Sticking along the lines of, of people, you mentioned Mark Cuban. When you're in the room with him, what stands out? Yeah, so I've never met him in person. This is really interesting, right? Um, he he's been in, he was an investor in that company for five years. We got him a great return. Um, what what stands out the most about Mark Cuban, I think, is two things. One, his ability to make decisions is very fast um, and and seems to be smart, right? So like. We, we got this investment over an email exchange and a phone call. Um, he asked smart questions quickly and made a decision, right? Um, and then two, I mean, I, I reply to emails pretty quickly, um, but I don't get anywhere. I get a lot of emails, but nowhere close to what Mark Cuban would get. And he replies to emails just as quickly to someone who is pretty non-consequential in his world of things, right? Like small investment, half a million dollars, like this is not make or break or important to him, right? Um, you, I send him an email, he responds instantly with either a question or acknowledgement or whatever it is. And, and that to me was always very interesting. If I was gonna flip the question and ask that about yourself, when you're in the room with someone else, what do you think they would say about you? Uh, that's a good question. I think the typically people understand what I've done in a in a very B two B space. So I think it's all the questions I always get from people, which is kind of my gauge of this, is always about how do you scale B two B SaaS, right? Like that's just my quote unquote expertise. Um, and what's interesting is like inside of Grasshopper, I spent far more time on culture and core values and other things unrelated to that. Um, but that, that to me seems like what people ask. So maybe that's what people see. I'm not sure. When you're highlighting culture and core values, what, what were key for you guys at uh, Grasshopper? Yeah. So our, our core values were uh, spelled out, Gary, go above and beyond, always entrepreneur, radically passionate and your team. Um, and it took us, uh, a while to discover those. Wait, we did it way too late. One, like we were 30 people into the company and, you know, 10, $15 million in revenue and, you know, growth hides everything, including problems like that. Um, and now we've, I've generated delivered core values at a number of other companies. I worked with Groove, Chargeify, um, a few other companies, and we've kind of refined that process. But more importantly is like one, there's lots of ways to figure that out, right? There's processes, things to do. Um, read good to great. Like that talks about the why of doing these things. Um, but the more important piece is like once you have real values, not honesty, respect, and things like that, real values, it's the process of putting them into place in the company and integrating them into hiring and firing in every decision, integrating them into the farthest reach of your company. So that's the customer service person, right? The customer service person is the farthest usually from the founder or the CEO and the closest to the customer, right? So every decision they're making has to be run through those core values. So it's the processes and the procedures that put that in front of them on a day-to-day -day basis, re reward and recognize and, and punish based on those. You mentioned hiring and firing. You've hired a lot of people throughout your career. Someone walks in the room for an interview. What are you looking for? What are you assessing? Yeah. So I, I wish I had a great solution for this. And, um, I've, I've, 
I spent a lot of time looking at this, like, how do you get better at hiring, right? Like, if I go back and look at my results, right, which is, um, you know, how many people that I hired were truly A players and how many people stayed, right? The results are not necessarily very good, <laughs> right? Um, so I think one is just our flaw of judgment of character, right? Like there's things that we may be biased for or against and, you know, influence our decision that don't help with that. The only thing that's really helped kind of move in the positive direction is really understanding what people actually did. So forgetting the resume, forgetting like the dumb interview questions, like if you were an animal, what animal would you be? And, you know, crap like that. And like, tell me one, here are our core values. Um, and we did this screening actually before the in-person interview, but like, show me in your life and in your business life, how you meet these core values with stories, real life stories, right? Like go above and beyond. Tell me how you helped your grandmother's friend who needed to do something and you drove her around and like, give me a real story for each of these. Um, and then similarly for work experience, right? Like if you say you're a Facebook expert, like I want to see the campaigns. I want to see the, the metrics. I want to see the actual returns. I want to see what it was before you started doing it and after you did it, right? Like the same questions I'd ask internally, I'm going to ask, you know, externally and, and expect the same results of, of proof, right? Like showing me. Yeah. History tends to repeat itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And like, I think the other, the other screening thing is just the more A players you have, the more A player referrals you get. So, <laughs> That help that that makes my metrics better anyway, right? Like, the, my, my top of funnel has become just inherently better because someone else is now kind of pre-screening for pure A players that they've either worked with or know personally. It was interesting how you mentioned that you you viewed a lot of the hires as actual failures. How, how do you assess the failures? Is that something you go back and and reassess multiple times throughout the years? Yeah. So, I mean, to me, the biggest learning of kind of the failures, which is either someone who didn't stay because of their own decision or we had to let go. Right. Um, and, and that means that they were not the right fit for either the position they were in or for the organization. So one piece is fix the core values, screen up front about that. So hopefully I can reduce the people that are just a bad fit for the organization. Right. Like that, that's an easier piece. The harder piece is like, did I design did I get the right person into the right seat? Is the position the right position, right? Um, so what I learned over the years was like setting up a 30, 60, 90 day plan during the interview process was the only thing that had a, a real re like result from it and a positive result. So in the interview process, like literally, what are you going to do in the first 30 days, the 60 days and 90 days? Like, let's lay this out together. Here are my expectations. Here's what you need to do because you're coming in and you're learning and other pieces. And like, we're going to evaluate that at the end of the 90 days. And we did this together, right? No, I love that advice. That's one I haven't heard before on one of these podcasts. That's great takeaway right there. Just to be clear for Grasshopper, it was just you and your partner. You guys never raised any additional money, right? Correct. Yeah. So we put in $150,000 together and our, our first like bills were like $300,000. So <laughs> we, we had to kind of negotiate and, you know, put things on credit cards and, and dance around for a while. But yeah, we didn't raise any uh, outside capital ever. So you go on in 2015, end up selling to Citrix Systems. What's that like? Yeah, it was a really interesting process. We we never expected to sell the business. We never intended it. We never had an exit plan. Um, even our business plan didn't have an exit plan. Like we were building a business that a we loved being in, going to every day, enjoyed, and like loved the customers we were serving, which is other entrepreneurs, right? Um, so the sale was was a very different process in that this was kind of starting to think about like what does de-risking my life look like compared to having all of my assets tied up in a highly illiquid private company? <laughs> um, and, you know, what am I willing to give up in terms of maybe possible long-term uh, returns for it? Uh, and, you know, like we, we both founders, like we had an executive team, a highly paid executive team, both founders, we lived a great life, right? Like we lived in the house we wanted. It's not a $10 million house. Like it's a reasonable house. We each had the cars we wanted. Like by no means are we living like, you know, ramen lifestyle, but we're also not living way beyond our means. So I could have gone like that forever, 
right? Um, so it's a balance. And someone asked me the other day, like, you know, how do you know if it's the right amount of money? I'm like, look, for us, we didn't want to sell. So someone had to pay more than I would reasonably pay. And I have near perfect information, meaning like I've been in the business for 12 years. I should know the most of anyone about it, right? And if someone's willing to pay far more than I'd be willing to pay for it, it's something to consider. Was there a lot of time spent like thinking over the conversation of if you're actually going to sell it or when they presented the number, you're like, you know what, with all the information I have, this makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, this was a more than a year process and we just, we just say no a bunch of times, like, no, we're not interested. No, we have, you know, these three marketing channels that we expect to hit this year and we did better than they're expected and, you know, all of those things. So, um, it, it, took a while um, until we even got to a number that they kind of put out in front of us. You mentioned the management team you already had in place. How do you avoid getting the golden, not getting the golden handcuffs and not having to stay and work after you guys sold? Mm. So for us, it was very much because we had a management team, right? So the acquirer looked at that and said, okay, like these guys on the management team are able to run day-to-day operations. Um, David and CMAC, my partner, are much more high level and they're doing like, you know, long-term planning and visionary things and things like that. So we actually prefer not to have to find some fancy title and a bunch of money for them to keep them on, right? Because we know the business is going to keep running. So that's, I mean, we the business was sold and we left that day. I mean, that was it. Do you at least go to the bank, check your bank account? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there was, I'm sure the, there was someone verified the wires before my email address got changed, but I mean, it, it was literally the next day. Oh, that's, that's, I mean, so like, what's the next day look like? Come on, let's, let's live vicariously through you here for a second. I mean, you guys sold the company, to, I think for a little over 200 million, you guys can probably do the math there. What's that like? Is it, is it a great moment? Is it bittersweet? Yeah. I mean, it was a very emotional moment. Um, and probably not the most positive, um, to be honest. Um, you know, the, the, the instant change I think was hard. Um, you know, I'd always just, my identity was wrapped up in like the grasshopper guy and that's what I did. And like, you know, everything I did and talked about was that. And then the next day it's all gone. Right. Um, and I joke about kind of email address, but like that became like the, the biggest pain. Like not only do you have to change it everywhere, but I'm like, Oh my God, like, I don't even know what email address I use. Like, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, and to me, it was just a representation of that. Um, and then, I mean, there's logistical things, right? Like, where does a, where does a wire like that go? Or like, you know, I had to ask like stupid questions. <laughs> like, you know, how, how do you handle that? And I obviously found experts and, you know, figured out the best ways to do that. And, um, but Honestly, my life didn't change um, besides having this kind of loss of identity for quite a while. Yeah, that identity component's really interesting. One I'm assuming most people don't think about. W- were there any steps you took, anything you did to help with that? Yes, there were two pieces of advice that I heard commonly from people that you know had gone through similar situations in life. Um, the first and most common was um, don't rush into anything. Just like as an entrepreneur, you're going to want to like go do something tomorrow. Like just don't do that. Chill out for a little bit. Um, spend some time and kind of find yourself and the things you want to do and why and start answering some of those questions you might not have thought about. Um, so I that, that was common across the board. The second one was, you know, really find something that genuinely interests you um, and you believe you can make an impact, right? Because the change of lifestyle is much less about you personally and much more about like, now you have optionality to do something that may be crazy, but can have high impact, right? And start to think about that and like, what does your legacy look like? And what do you want to be known for? And questions like that. Um, So those were the two common things I heard you know, from other people. Can you talk about the narrative in your head during that time with answering questions like that about what yeah. you want your legacy to be? Yeah. So I didn't know, like, I, I really didn't know. So before the sale, I actually, I had previously done uh, Ironmans and triathlons and all sorts of stuff in a never ending quest to lose weight. Um, and probably pretty unsuccessfully in the long run. Um, but during the sale, I, I decided I randomly walked into a yoga class actually. Um, and you know, went from never doing that, 
to practicing six days a week and doing a 200 hour teacher training. Um, and that process for sure helped me connect from a mindfulness perspective. And everyone talks about meditation and whatever, like, uh, like what it helped me do was calm my mind so I could think about these bigger questions. Um, so that, that became very critical and I've continued that practice today. Um, in terms of impact, like I, I really started to question, um, two things. One, like, what do I really care about? And then two, what have I struggled the most with? And what I struggled the most with over the years has been, uh, weight, health, diet, like exercise, like those things, like that has consumed me. Um, and I've never, and I like from frustration to fear, to anger, like there had never been a good solution for me there. So like I started to dig in deep there and like try to find answers for me. But like the, the second question to that to me was how do, how do I help other people with this? Cause so many people struggle with this and don't, you know, typical conventional wisdom, you know, just provides more frustration or more fear or, you know, um, e even kind of self-doubt. I know you've spent a ton of time, money, resources into self-experimenting on your own health, your own fitness. What are some of like your key findings if we're breaking it down into different categories? I mean, we can just start with sleep. Yeah. What would you identify there? Sleep is a great one, and it was actually one of the more expensive ones. And what the the end result uh, was probably the more simple rules or kind of like guidelines, right? So like I spent a tremendous amount of time and money on this. I did, uh, I mean, I've 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 tested ten or fifteen mattresses. Um, I've done the in lab and had home sleep studies with the twenty two things attached to you. Um, different monitoring devices, Aura Rings, Okia, like everything, like, you know, tracking obsessively, probably to a, to a fault. Uh, but what I came down to was like the things that had the biggest impact for me for sleep, um, going to bed between nine and 10 PM. So try like trying to be kind of nine 30 to nine, but you know, 10 PM at the latest, um, waking up naturally with no alarm clock. Um, so just letting my body tell me when to wake up, um, use, using, um, kind of food pr productively for sleep. So that means not eating within three hours of bedtime. So I pushed my eating window back. Um, those three things together, there's lots of other little things like you can talk about magnesium and whatever else, but like, if you want to talk about highest impact to lowest, you know, effort, those ones are pretty easy and changed my sleep and changed my life. Um, so, you know, I wake up naturally between, you know, six, six thirty most days. Um, and my goal is to wake up feeling rested and saying, hell yeah, this is going to be a great day. Can we cover some of your highest impact things, even along the, the lines of nutrition and then fitness? Yeah. So, um, nutrition, I think is a, is a difficult space. Like I found what works for me best and what for, works for me best is a high fat, low carb, you know, roughly ketogenic diet. I probably consume a bit more carbohydrates via vegetables than kind of the quote unquote, you know, recommendation. And I don't even track, um, macronutrients or calories. Like I, I found that to be very counterproductive and for most people it is. So, um, you know, I, I just look at like on a scale of one to three, did I meet my expectations for diet today? Um, I think the important thing, like people always ask me, like, should I do that diet? Right. And my answer is, is quite simple. I don't know. Right. I, I, I genuinely believe that the, the diet that I consume is far better than the sad diet, standard American diet, right? Like high carbohydrates, processed carbs and sugars and vegetable oils, like that is just bad, right? And and the data is now very clear on that, right? Like government puts in these recommendations in the 60s, um, obesity spikes, type one, type two diabetes spikes, heart disease spikes, like all of the things we were trying to fix with these recommendations all have gone up tremendously faster, right? So my answer to people is, look, you need to try and find what's best for you. So I tried a vegan diet for six months. I actually lost weight, um, but I didn't feel good. Like I was constantly hungry. I felt like when I consumed food, I was just like overly consuming. Like there were things that weren't working for me, right? Um, so I think 
it's individual and finding what you feel the best on is the most important for diet. Yeah, that's something I, I try to go back to and remind myself. It's all about how you feel. And if you're doing this certain thing because it's a fad and you've heard all these other people that it works for and it doesn't work for you, it might be time to try something different. I'd like to dive back into your day. You mentioned you wake up naturally. What's next for you in the morning? Any routines you have? I know it's a pretty standard question, but I'm always interested. Yeah, so I'm a big routine person, right? So everything's scheduled on my calendar. If it's not on my calendar, it doesn't happen. Um, you know, that that's that was a very freeing experience. I learned this all the way back in high school. Like, the more things I did, so I, I, I played multiple sports. I got home on the bus at like 7 p.m. I do homework. Like, I got far more done on those days than the days that I had nothing to do, right? Um, so I've kind of lived my life that way. Uh, routine though in the morning, like I try to go to the gym every morning, um, even if I'm not working out, right? So to me, it's just part of the routine. Like I get, I shower and steam at the gym. I get dressed there. I shave, like it's part of that ongoing routine. So days that I'm not even working out, I still drive there and do that, right? Um, and I think it just creates that, that, um, one less decision point in the morning, right? Um, it also helps me with fasting, right? Because the busier you stay, the easier it is to fast, even if you're eating a high-fat diet and you're not necessarily hungry. But when you're bored, like, it's easy to go eat food, right? So if I pack my mornings well into the afternoon with stuff, including going to the gym, fasting until 2 or 3 or 4 p.m. just happens naturally. I don't even think about it. With your fasting routine, are you just having one meal a day then? Uh, usually about two meals a day. Um, so I, I want my goal is to fast for at least sixteen hours a day. Most days are about eighteen. Um, so reducing that eating window pretty small. Um, so eating in the afternoons and trying to have my final meal by you know kind of five thirty at the latest. Um, I'd prefer to have it at more like four thirty, but I mean I have three kids and a busy household and, you know, 4.30 is just not a reasonable expectation every day um, when things are happening. What's your work environment like? Do you go to an office? Do you have one at home? What's that set up? Yeah, I've always removed myself from the home, even though I worked from home for a lot of time. So, um, you know, in my early days in college, like I didn't have like a separate office. I just had a room that I set up as an office, but always got dressed like I was going to an office, like not in a suit because I would never wear a suit, but like you know, fully get ready. Don't roll out of bed and sit in the chair. Like, get ready for the day. Um, now, I always remove myself from the house. So, where I am now in Texas, uh, I have a little office right next door to the house. Um, in Las Vegas, where I was for the last eight years, I had an office, like, uh, call it 10 miles away from the house. Um, and for me, it's, it's about productivity, right? It's a it's an environment set up for just work. Um, I move myself from the house with kids and noise and distractions, um, and I can practice my routine and freedom because there's not other people around that might distract from that. So I like to go out once an hour, once every two hours, and at least go outside, even if it's for a minute or two to take a phone call or do something. And like getting into those types of routines are hard when you're in your house. You mentioned that if it's not scheduled on the calendar, you don't do it. So do you essentially have almost every minute of your day on your actual calendar? I try to. Like, I mean, I'll schedule, like, listen to, you know, audiobook for an hour, right? Um, I'll schedule, you know, uh, the only thing that doesn't really get scheduled is eating because uh, when I'm busy, I just naturally don't eat. So I don't, there's no reason to stop to do that. Um, I'd say pretty much everything, like, yoga's on my calendar, you know, as a recurring event, because it's just there. Um, so yeah, I mean, pretty much everything's on there. You mentioned you'll schedule to listen to an audio book. How much time do you set aside for free space and just free thinking so you can really execute on those high level things? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so I, I do try to schedule like specific time, but it, it's less kind of open. Like, schedule time to think about X issue or deal with something, right? Um, I'll put that on my calendar compared to like schedule just pure open time. Um, I do find though when I'm listening to books, it is one of the most uh, kind of mind opening times in terms of like all of the problems that you're facing, right? Because all of a sudden you hear one sentence, you're like, oh, wait, let me pause that. I listen to all my books. I, I don't know, it's much easier for me. I'll pause it and be like, okay, that reminds me of these seven other things that are really important and I might solve a problem, 
right? But the other two kind of hacks like that, that I've found for this is one, I removed all social media from my phone, right? Because I, I felt like I was losing any moments of free time because the natural reaction was to pick up my phone and get Facebook or Instagram or do something like that and scroll through it. As soon as I got rid of it, now my natural reaction, even if I pick up the phone, is to open up the notepad and take a note about something that's interesting to me or something I want to solve or do or like, or just think, right? Like I'm sitting in the car, I'm like, oh, okay, I don't have to scroll through this like everyone else. And I'm just thinking about things that are happening. Um, and what it created for me was this time very much like um, people kind of describe the shower time, right? Like people seem to have miraculous ideas in the shower, right? Like we always joke about it, but it's because you're both not distracted um, and your brain is, is worrying about something very mundane, like washing your body and standing there and you're going through a routine. So your mind is very free. Um, so being able to do that by just getting rid of social media on my phone was awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love this whole concept around idea generation. I want to unpack this even more. You mentioned when you get an idea, you might open up the note app in your phone. Do you ever write down in the physical journal? Are there other things you do along those lines as well? Yeah, so I used to do that a lot more. Um, I don't know why I stopped. Like I used to have like a moleskin um, for years and I would just take notes and notes. Um, I don't even remember when I stopped doing that, to be honest with you. I think now just the, all of those things end up uh, on the phone or the computer. I have Google documents with pages and pages of notes. Like when I went, like I never expected to write a book, <laughs> but when I went to go do that, like I just opened up a few of these documents and had pages and pages of notes about my thoughts and ideas and frameworks and things I had thought about because that's how I just put it down. Right. But it happened to be on the computer, not a physical journal. We talked about idea generation and acquiring some new skills a little earlier. Are there any other things you're consuming? You mentioned audiobooks. Are there different blogs, newsletters you subscribe to that kind of help your frameworks? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't consume a lot of blogs um, and, and I consume no news. Um, so uh, I got rid of all news in my house, um, like television news, um, just gone. Uh, and not only did I not lose anything, but I gained a tremendous amount of time, happiness, all sorts of things. Um, and I haven't missed anything in the world, so we're all good there. Um, I, I probably get a few email newsletters, um, don't really pay attention to them very often. Um, I like looking at Hacker News every now and then, just because it kind of boils up some of the things. Um, so that's kind of like a, you know, I have a free moment once or twice a day, take a look at it and see what's kind of coming up to the top. Um, just cause it's been kind of curated by others. Um, some podcasts, but really I, I like listening to audiobooks. Any audiobooks you recommend? Mm, good question. I mean, there's ones that I love, right? Like, um, let's see. So this year, you know, some of my favorites that I've either listened or re-listened to, um, Sapiens by Naval, um, uh, uh so you've, you've all, um, uh, I really enjoyed uh, The Evolution of Everything. Um, Matt Ridley, I believe, is the author. Um, I enjoyed Jordan Peterson's book. Uh, I know a lot of controversy surrounds him, but um, I think you know he, he did a good – I wish there was a little less religion in the book, but I, I think it was a very impactful book if you want to kind of expand your mind. Um, read quite a few Stoic books or books about Stoicism this year. Um, it depends. I've actually built a, uh, cause one of my challenges is like, I don't, how do I decide which books to read? Right? Like there's millions of books and millions year, new a year. Um, so I created this spreadsheet in Google documents and I'm going to release it so people can use it. Um, that I took the top 15 kind of best book lists. So like, you know, Tim Ferriss and, you know, uh, Bill Gates and like people that read a lot, um, and taking a lot of this stuff and then compared all of their best lists to find which books overlap, right? So show me the books that appeared more than once or twice or three times, four times, five times. And like that became a really great filter for finding like the, some of the best books I've ever enjoyed. Um, so that, that's been one way to do it. When are you releasing that Google doc? 
Uh, it'll be on my website, davidhauser.com, um, next week. Um, we're just finishing up a few tweaks to it so people can add their own lists um, and, it, and allow it to auto-recalculate all of the back-end calculations all in Google. Um, I like... I, I love Google Docs and I used it so much. So like it, it probably took far more effort to make it work this way than if I just like built an app to do it. Um, but it's ultimately flexible, right? One can download it and do anything they want with it. Cool. Well, we'll definitely have that one linked up in the show notes. Is there anything you do while listening to a book? You mentioned you might spark a new idea. Is it solely just writing in the notes app or are there other things you do when something is sparked? It's always the notes app um, or pausing and actually going to do something like I, the the most frustrating thing for me is like uh, I if I want to do something, and I just take a note about it. I prefer to just actually do it if it's something that's quick um, or impactful. Right. So just literally pausing it. So maybe I schedule an hour and I only listen for half an hour. Right. Um, that's fine. Uh, but what the thing I love the most, honestly, about listening to books is listening in the car while I'm driving. Um, a, it's like easy time gained, right? Like I would have just wasted that time otherwise. So now I'm consuming something that's educational and interesting and I like, um, but I don't know why. And I'm sure there's some scientific explanation for this, but the concept of focusing on the road makes me far more focused listening than if I'm sitting in a chair in my office listening, right? Um, and, and I think it goes back to this idea of being in the shower, right? Like we're doing this, you know, thing that is a routine and rote activity again and again, and our brain is kind of deactivated the other piece. So now doing the the other part of our brain activity of, you know, consuming knowledge and retaining it is easier. You and I are the exact same way. Something I, I love to do, I'll get an iced coffee, go for a long drive and just be listening to something. And my brain just seems to process things extremely well. When you're looking back at some of the best ideas you've ever had, are there a few that come to mind for you? Best ideas I've ever had. Ah, so um, that's a hard one. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of realizations compared to ideas where like it becomes a crystallization in my mind, like the framework that I put into the book for, you know, personal optimization, right? Like it became crystallized in my mind actually when I was in the shower at the gym. Um, and, you know, to me, that's less about an idea and over a period of years, letting that all come together into the ultimate kind of uh, end piece of that, right? And although you could classify it as an idea, it's not like you sit there and you're like, oh my God, I just thought of this. It's just a crystallization over time. I'm so glad I asked the question because that's such a clearer question going from idea to realization to crystallization. So thanks for making that way clearer. <laughs> now I've got a much better question to ask. I want to dive back in, into your actual work. And we mentioned earlier that you have this new company now called Super Fat. So, so why the jump into the consumer packaged good industry? Yeah. So this, I think, goes a lot to the question you asked about, like, you know, how do I decide what I care about and, you know, what's important to me and my legacy, right? And one thing I'm, I'm very passionate about is, like, I, I, I believe our food system in the United States and in most developed countries is just broken, right? So um, it's highly manipulated by um, government subsidies, by large business that want to sell us things they call healthy that are definitely killing us. Um, and I thought about like, how do I change that? Right? Like I could stand up and scream about it. No one cares. Um, we thought about building a technology product to change behavior and we got pretty far in doing that, but found it didn't really affect behavior except a few really crazy people like me who like to track a lot of stuff and like data. Um, so like, how can I really change that? And the easiest answer is provide the product I wish existed that, you know, is not those things, right? Does not have added sugars, but still tastes amazing. You know, it has high healthy fats, right? Is, is something that I would feel proud handing to my child and saying, this is something you consume and it's good for you, not this junk that you buy at the supermarket that's, you know, a, a quote unquote bar that's healthy and it's really just mostly sugar, right? Um, so, Hopefully what we can do and, and our core purpose there is uh, empowering change with fat um, is, is really change people's minds about, you know, what is possible and how we can fix our food system from the inside out. 
I'd be so intrigued to to hear your framework about coming from a completely different industry and what you take from your background there and how are you combining it now with the CPG industry? Anything you're doing differently you think is just outside the box? Yeah, I mean, I think one, we're looking at marketing channels um, really on a, a totally different basis. So looking at reorder rates um, and looking at it more of a subscription model, even though it's not subscription, right? So what does it look like? How often do people reorder? What is my total cost of acquisition or CAC over time? Um, how can I optimize these channels you know, purely metrics driven, right? Um, where I think a lot of people look at this as brand and other things. And brand is very important. And we spend a lot of time and money on the actual brand. Um, so I think one is applying those. Um, two is, you know, trying to figure out what parts of this business we can outsource or virtualize um, from our learnings uh, in a different industry, right? So uh, how can we do customer service differently than everyone else in CPG? Well, we can do it much more like Uber would, right? And have, you know, lots of different people in a help desk, you know, anywhere in the world working 24 hours a day solving problems, right? Um, you know, how can we, you know, look at uh, distribution and manufacturing in similar ways and ask questions that other people aren't asking? Um, so to me, it's like, Every step of the way, we're trying that. Um, more recently, financing, right? Like, how do we negotiate financing deals that are atypical for this industry, but actually work for us from a cash flow perspective? Do you have any examples of how you finance that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, at, talking with, you know, co-packers and vendors and suppliers about, like, how do we finance these things over time? You know, when are we paying and why? What methods are we paying with? Credit card, you know, not like, obviously, credit card gives us a lot of flexibility. Um, and I think you know, some of these questions people just don't ask in this industry. Like, some of the stuff we ask, people are like, huh? Like, we've never been asked that before, right? And this was just, like, standard practice for us at Grasshopper. Like, We'd buy, you know, a million phone numbers and we're like, okay, like, can we pay with a credit card 60 days later? And it was just common that it always happened. I love that concept and thinking kind of outside the box there and in a different context. Did you bring anyone with CPG experience or did you think it was refreshing to have no experience into that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got involved with, the, with these guys early on. Um, you know, they uh, had no CPG experience, neither did I. Um, I think they've started to add a little bit to the team, um, especially on the sales side where, you know, now you're talking about kind of relationships and wholesalers and, you know, distributors and things like that. So I, I think there are areas that make a lot of sense. But in general, my my preference would be, yeah, like if I can find, for example, the best Facebook, Instagram person from you know a totally different industry, I'd probably prefer that over the person that you know just has a bunch of CPG experience doing that. No good insights there. You you mentioned the credit card. What do you do uh, on your own personal side, whether that be personal budgeting, asset allocation, things along those lines? It seems like everything you're thinking about is it's pretty advanced and different. Anything you do there personally? Yeah, so I have some pretty strong feelings here, um, and especially for founders. Um, like, one, I, I want to make sure that all of my active investments now are in things I can control because I believe that I can make outsized returns better than anyone else, right? And if I don't believe that, I shouldn't be an entrepreneur. I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, right? Um, outside of that, everything else should be in index funds, right? So I don't care who you use. I personally use Betterment um, because the rates are super low and they have tax loss harvesting, but low cost index funds. Um, I don't even know how much is in there. I don't look at it. I don't log in. Um, so it gives the benefit of, of multiple things. One, there is no emotional tie to it, right? Like I don't care if the market goes up or down. In the long run, it goes up. Um, I care about the things I can influence, which is my businesses and the things I'm involved in not worrying about the other stuff. Um, and, you know, to me, it's remove as much distraction as possible. And worrying about where money is or where it's going or stocks or anything else is just a tremendous distraction. That's interesting. I, I'm curious too, how you ended up in Texas. So I, I, Grasshopper was originally up in Massachusetts, right? And then you made your yep. way to Vegas and now you're in Texas. What led to that? Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, it's actually quite a funny story. We, uh, I was in Vegas for eight years, um, and we randomly said, hey, uh, uh, kind of jokingly, like, you know, the schools aren't here that great. Maybe we should w- move somewhere. I'm like, okay, ha, 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 yeah, no, whatever. Um, and the next day, we're like, well, you know, I used to have an office in, in Austin, and that's where I am now. Um, you know, maybe we should give it a try. <laughs> um, and a few days later, we decided to buy a house and give it a try for a year. Um, I mean, literally that easy. Um, and for me, like th- this is very much just like a learning experience, right? Like, do we like this place? Yes or no. Like we'll meet new people and learn interesting things and do things that are different with the kids and our, but you know, as a family, like all of that is a big learning experience, right? And if, you know, if the sale of a company gave me any ability to do that, like that's where I want to spend my time and money and effort um, in, you know, learning experiences uh, or just experiences as a whole for the family. Expanding upon those learning experiences, I know Austin is huge into entrepreneurship, a lot of ideas circulating down there. Any interesting conversations you've had recently? Yeah, I mean, I think the the community is awesome. Like just the ability to, you know, go to a dinner last week with a friend and like six other people show up who are all doing interesting things, um, who are all entrepreneurs just randomly. Um, you know, I, I think that's great. Like kind of those just serendipitous things that happen. Um, I think that's the power of, of community um, like this. Um, I can't think of any specifics, but like as I reflect back, like, and, and st- we're starting to ask the question, like, do we want to stay here or not, right? Um, like, that to me is one of the most powerful things about communities like this, and, and Austin is a great one. No, that's great to hear. Just a few more quick hit questions. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? The kindest thing anyone's ever done for me? Um, I think two come to mind. One, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend Dawn uh, has been tremendously accepting in my ridiculous, uh, kind of efforts, especially around food and testing different things because she's the one that, that deals with all the food in the house. Um, and her kindness and passion around that has, uh, has been amazing. Like I never would have put up with that me. Right. Um, so that, that's one. Um, I think the other one is, you know, really, uh, the lately, the openness of this Austin community, like, I've been here not very long and just people like opening their arms up and saying, Hey, you should meet these three people. And, um, like genuinely making interesting introductions with nothing to gain on their side. Right. Um, that, that has been kind of the most recent one that comes to my mind. No, that's very cool here. And then what's the most unique thing someone did to leave an impression on you? Mm, The most unique thing someone did to leave an impression on me. (sighs) I would say, the, the stuff that's interested me the most lately is like how people get your attention. Um, and someone sent me uh, a, a hand engraved knife um, and they weren't selling anything, but they were trying to get my attention. Sent it in the physical mail, FedEx, not, you know, in a kind of cheap package. Um, that I think has been the most unique and interesting one that's got my attention. And it's been on my mind lately because I'm thinking about like, how do I do that at scale if there's a group of people I want to get their attention of? You really have me thinking about that now. And just a side note, I, I hope it wasn't grabbed your attention because you thought there might be a serial killer coming after you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Luckily, it was a nice, it was a nice kitchen knife, and it was actually a very nice knife. Um, but yeah, no. So you mentioned, I mean, still a ton of things going on. Angel investing, new company. You have the book coming out in September. Where do you want the listeners checking out? How can they best stay connected with you? Yeah, so davidhauser.com and unstoppablebook.com. Uh, you can sign up for the mailing list. Um, I also have a new newsletter that goes out once a week, kind of a few of my thoughts each week, very easily digestible. Um, bullet points at most, um, links to interesting things I'm doing or, you know, I've purchased or using. Um, cause like, that's what I wish I could consume, uh, on a daily, uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, so I've started doing that. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. David Hauser, thank you for joining us on what got you there. Thanks, Sean. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc 
and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the northern lights. Yes, they saw the northern lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.